0: Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coach Cast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, And never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. My guest today is Ryan Hall, who happens to be the only American to ever run a marathon in under 2.05 with a time of 2.04.58. He also holds the American half marathon record at 59.43. He is married to Sarah Hall, who is the second fastest female marathoner in history with a time of 2.20.32. Ryan retired from professional running in 2016 to start his coaching business, Run Free Training. At the same time, he took on a new challenge to transform his body and become a power lifter, which resulted in him adding more than 40 pounds of body weight. He still pushes himself every day by focusing on unique personal challenges, which are hard to imagine. I hope you enjoy this episode with a truly intriguing and one-of-a-kind world-class athlete turned coach. By the way, this is the final episode of season three of the CoachCast. Be sure to stay tuned for more to come in 2022. Ryan Hall, thanks so much for joining me today on the Training Peaks CoachCast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Dirk. I'm stoked to uh, chat with you.
0: Yeah, thanks. You know... I almost don't know where to begin. You are, you are like the most interesting man on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) You've, 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 you sort of have these different lives that you've lived. And um, so I, I want to kind of, you know, obviously the the audience um, you know, I've already mentioned that you are the fastest American marathoner ever with you've only the only American to go under under a two Oh five and you hold the half uh, marathon American record at fifty nine and some change. That's amazing right there. If that's like all we delved into would be amazing. But there's so much more to you and and how you've kind of changed uh, your focus from retirement. Um, and we'll get into that and and your running career. But I want to take you back to um, you know, why, Why retire you I think it was 2016 is when you kind of officially stopped uh, professional uh, running. And what why did you decide to retire at that moment in time.
1: Yeah, so it was, you know, a lot of people when they get to the end of their running career, they're like, "Oh, it was really hard for me to decide. I didn't know." And uh, that was not my experience at all. Like for me, it was just crystal clear. Um, i I'll never forget the actual moment when I decided. I was on an airplane and uh, I was flying and looking out over the window through the window and looking down at all the, you know, the landscape beneath me. And it was kind of cool because. You know, when you're in an airplane, you see the world around you from a top down perspective, right? And, uh, yeah as an athlete, that's when that's how you want to make the most important decisions as well from this top down perspective. So Mm. I was kind of making the decision based on looking at the last four years and being like, okay, how has my body been responding to all the different kind of training I've been throwing at it? You know, I worked with a lot of different coaches over that time period, um, tried tweaking my nutrition, my training, my training location, like I, I tweaked all the variables that I could think to tweak and worked with all the people who were some of the best coaches in the world during that time to try to turn my ship around, my ship being my body. And it just wasn't responding well to anything I was doing. So, you know, looking at the last four years from the time um, it started with plantar fasciitis, getting ready for the 2012 Olympic trials. And I just had to run through that. And then that led to a whole string of other injuries, which, you know, long story short on that, it's like compensation issues should be taken very seriously from runners. Because like when I ran through plantar fasciitis, it was like one injury on one side and then we'd go to the other side and just back and forth for you know four years so and then I was also running into energy fatigue issues where I'd go for runs and I couldn't even finish a 30 minute easy jog like it was that bad and uh, I remember just I'd call them walk of shames because I'd go out with this intention of running 30 minutes easy and inevitably day after day I couldn't even finish those runs like I'd literally have to stop and walk and the sensation that I had was just like my body was just like melting into the ground with each step. So as you can imagine, and a lot of people who are listening to this can probably relate to that sensation, that sensation of just like extreme fatigue. And mine was just like months and months on end, that combined with four years of injury problems. And it just became very clear to me during that time that my body, the message it was communicating to me was, we have given my body's given me so much during this 20 year running career. And I trained at such a crazy hard level. Um, that, it was ready for me to give back to it. Like it had been given to giving to me for 20 years straight. And it was telling me it's time to give back to me now, if that makes sense. And so that's when I decided like I was going to stop running. And I i am proud of like how I went through the process because I'm not I wasn't always this mature, but I've learned from like my dad and from other sages that I've had in my life that you, when you're making a major life decision like that, it's a really good idea to sit on it. So hmm. I decided, and this came from my dad, that I would retire from pro running, but I wasn't going to tell anyone except for Sarah, my wife. I told her when I came home from that trip, but then I'm not going to tell anyone else for a week. And I'm just going to tell myself, okay, I'm done, I'm retired, I'm going to stop running and just try that on, you know, and see how that sits in deep inside me. Like, it does that decision is it does it fill me up with peace and hope and like good things inside or when i make this decision and i start actually walking in that decision does it cause all this inner turmoil and not the opposite of peace right and if if that's Mm -hmm. the case then maybe i need to reconsider but um for me during that week period of trying it on it was just crystal clear that this was the direction i needed to go and uh got into the weight room and kind of closed that season of, of life and running and moved into the next one.
0: So was that a, a, a heavy load lifted? Was that a sense of just uh, like release? I get that sense that it was just like a very positive um, decision that you made that week. And that's how it came across to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There, it felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. You know, I was trying to get ready for the 2016 Olympic trials. So, you know, that's always a pressure filled situation, whether training is clicking or not. So yeah, that weight kind of came off, but more than anything, probably what I appreciated most about making that decision is for the first time I could stop striving. So, you know, Mm -hmm. during my time as a pro runner, it was always just like trying to get back to where I was, try to get back into 59 minute half marathon shape, try to get back into 204 marathon shape. And so there's just this never ceasing of striving. You're just always trying to get better, always you're inside your own mind all the time, thinking about all the things you could be doing to get better and you're just always like going after this thing. And so for the first time when I decided to retire, I could just sit back and just be very thankful for what running gave me for the level I was able to get at. And I could just, for the first time, just appreciate everything and stop striving. And that felt so, so good to my soul and spirit.
0: Wow. So, so now day one of this retirement and you just mentioned the weight room, you know, I jumped in the weight room, like, was that always something in the back of your mind or did it just hit you that week when you retired or you know, the, the transformation that we've seen that you're posting in social and, and how you've really, really transformed your body. Um, I want to, you know, what, what led to that decision to go from endurance athlete to what do you even call it? Are you, your strength training? Are you powerlifting? What do you kind of officially call yourself now?
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question. I have a hard time defining it myself. Um, you know, my, (laughs) in brief, my goal is to get as big and strong as I can possibly get. And so I'm kind of like on this, this crazy experiment of like someone who has all the wrong genetics, right? 204 marathoner, like you don't have powerlifting genetics and be able to run 204 for the marathon. So, so, you know, it was really fun for me to get to do something and focus on something like running where it was like right up my alley. But now, like, it's a whole new challenge to focus on something where, like, okay, I'm not genetically gifted at all. I'm the opposite of that. But let's see how far we can take this thing when you combine it with proper training, proper nutrition, proper sleep. Like I know how to train. And so even though I don't have the genetic component, it's still really fun to see growth. So it was that kind of curiosity. But a lot of it too was coupled with, and I think this is relevant to every runner out there, you know, a lot of runners, they get to the point where like they can no longer run and then there becomes a very big uh, crisis of identity. And I knew that that would be a problem for me that I had to find a way to continue to express who I am in a different way because I could no longer do it in the running space. Like my body was clearly done with running. Right. And I was just going to continue to pound my body into the ground if I continue down the running path. So, but I needed to stay true to who I am and who I am is like, I love big challenges I love going to failure, going as hard as I can physically. I love doing that. And I love seeing growth and growth in my body. I love seeing my body change and adapt. And uh, you know, in running, it was like, I loved being able to run times I could never run before. And then weightlifting now it's like, okay, I couldn't bench 330 pounds a week ago. And now I'm seeing the change, the adaptation, and now I can. And to me, that's just like, it doesn't even matter what level I'm at, right? It doesn't matter if it's at a world-class level or like in my lifting, like I'm strong for a regular guy, but I'm not like anywhere near like world-class class levels for powerlifting I would never even enter a competition but for me it's not about that it's about staying staying true to who I am as a guy who loves to see growth as a guy who loves to experiment with my training so I think that can be helpful for people if they need to transition out of running to realize like it might not even be the running that they're so in love with but they love to express themselves through the medium of running. So as you're making uh, transitions like I was undergoing when I had to stop running, the question becomes how can I continue to express myself in a way that I enjoy it, in a way that I can – be fully me in a new activity that is no longer running. And for me, um, weightlifting kind of ticked all those boxes and I just fell in love with it. And I went from, I hated to lift when I was running professionally. And then I just fell in love with it. Well,
0: yeah, you mentioned always a new challenge and what's, what's great with your challenges. Is there But basically like anybody can go out there and attempt it. You're not spending a hundred thousand dollars and trying to get to the top of Mount Everest, which not very many people can spend or even think about doing, but you're doing crazy stuff. Like tell us what you did this last month, this grand Canyon challenge, like you like (laughs) chopped a cord of wood and then you went to the bottom and lugged up. Was it five gallon jugs of water, like six miles up the rim? Like is that what you did like with like a month ago?
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually it was just a couple of weeks ago. Um and yeah, just like fun stuff that is unique to me that I enjoy. So like a lot of people are like, Oh, you should get into CrossFit, but I'm like, uh oh, my mobility is really bad from my running days. Like I don't want that just doesn't seem fun to me. Like, I have a ton of respect for people to do it, but that's just not me, right? So, like, I just find fun things that are me. Like, I love farmer carries. So, yeah, I just bought like two, uh, two seven gallon water jugs off Amazon for like 15 bucks each. And I've just been doing these farmer carries for like a year straight. And it's like such a great activity to do. Hits my cardio. It's like super hard aerobically on my system. And then obviously it's hard like on your traps, your grip strength, your rear delts, um, all that stuff, your core is getting hit super hard, your quads. So yeah, I split a cord of wood at my house in the morning, which is also a ton of grip strength. And I love splitting wood. That's like one of my favorite like therapeutic (laughs) activities to do. And then uh, we live in Flagstaff, like 90 minutes from the Grand Canyon. So we drove to the Grand Canyon, and I ran down, uh, yeah, 6.3 miles, 5000 feet of elevation loss down to the bottom of the canyon. Uh, filled up these water jugs in the Colorado River and then farmer carried them out 6.3 miles 5,000 feet of elevation gain and I was a 6 hour farmer carry out of there so I can only carry them like 50 meters at a time so it was literally it was the hardest thing I've ever done because you know like when you run a marathon you're pretty comfy for like 20 miles like I'm conversational I can talk to people it's like feeling pretty good for like 20 miles compared to this it was like doing intervals it's like 30 seconds you're carrying as far as you can go stopping breathing like super super hard trying to recover as quick as you can and then back at it so it's like six hours basically of intervals and it was it was super intense it got dark on us out there. So we were just in headlamps. I had some of my buddies, my brother was out there filming it. And, uh, it was just such a cool environment. And my friends were just like, giving me food between ev- like every third carry and give me water. I've never felt like so wow. loved and supported, um, in an activity like that. And it was just incredible. So it's cool to like keep living you know i think a lot of people and i had this sensation too when i retired from pro running that like oh like my like i'm like a gladiator right that just like lost (laughs) his purpose in life and now like life is just gonna suck from here on out is kind of like (laughs) the sensation you get as a pro athlete when you're done you feel just like used up right right? unless you like continue to grow. You continue to find things you're excited about and you continue to find goals that get you excited to train. And, um, you know, I'll do this in the, in the lifting and endurance space for as long as it's fun for me. And then if it's no longer fun, then I'll find it like, again, another medium, a new medium to express who I am, to continue to remain true to who I am as a person.
0: Wow. Any lessons learned from all this lifting and crazy challenges that, you may have been able to take you know, back in time to your former self and maybe done things differently when you were racing professionally.
1: For sure, yeah. I've learned so much about lifting since I retired from pro running. So, you know, a question I get all the time is like, "How does it feel to run now, um, being way, way stronger, but also way bigger?" So, I'm like 187 pounds right now. I raced at 137 pounds. I got as low as 127 pounds, and I'm five foot ten so um the running experience as you can imagine is completely different um it does not distance running does not feel good at all anymore and i have like zero desire to do it um i do right. do it occasionally like right now i'm trying to do this crazy challenge where i deadlift 500 pounds out on a track and the timer starts when you touch the bar and then complete a mile run also under that five minute time period so i'm doing some running now like every other day 20 minutes but I just Just doesn't feel good at all but what does feel amazing is sprinting like I'm actually Hmm. faster now over 100 meters without doing any sprint training at all like zero right I'm faster over 100 meters now than I've ever been in my entire life and I'm 39 years old so all that to say like I've learned how to put a lot of power in my into my legs and I've learned what works in the weight room and what doesn't um, you know, when I was running professionally, oftentimes I was just moving lightweight, and I was just doing like very standard stuff, but wasn't super running specific. And now I I know how to train athletes in the weight room, especially runners, and train them in the ranges of motion where they're not going to get hurt. Um, for example, when I was training for the Beijing Olympics, I got hurt doing butt to the ground squatting um, in my preparation for the games, and there was no reason why I should be down in that position as a marathoner yes if your goal is like strength adaptation and getting stronger of course you should be doing butt to the ground squatting but for a marathon runner like what's specific to that is hip extension right and Mm -hmm. so they need to be really strong through that hip extension movement and the good thing about that is like your liability of getting injured if you're doing a half squat uh, excuse me, a half squat compared to a full squat is just night and day different. Like it's almost hard to get hurt doing a half squat. And then you can load up the bar way, way heavier, which is going to give you a way better hormonal response. Um, so things like testosterone, my testosterone was clinically low every time I measured it. And uh, I wonder what it could have been if I was lifting a lot heavier in the weight room. And obviously there's a ton of factors that play into that. Um, But that's just kind of one example of of something I've learned in the weight room. Now I'm like, man, I wish I would have known this when I was running professionally.
0: So are you taking runners through a periodized uh, strength training regime where they actually get to a max strength phase or is it all really focused on traditional, you know, higher rep, um, lower weight stuff, um, which doesn't really get periodized.
1: Yeah. So we, I like to lift heavy and I like to, I like to just throw different stimulus at it. So to answer your question, like what we do with like run free training, our online training business is we'll focus heavily on weights early on in buildups for say a marathon. So say if you're training for a winter marathon then over the summertime you'd really be focused on lifting and of course you're still doing run training and still doing like fart licks and base building but during that base building period is a great time to focus on weightlifting and trying to get as strong as you can and obviously like our goal for our runners isn't to get their run one rep max as high as possible but there right. is a time to like be lifting heavy and being okay with your quality because the thing about lifting heavy it's like now if I lift a big leg day I'll still be tired from that if I try and run like two days later I'm still tired from that lift so there is a time and place for heavy lifting and then you kind of go into maintenance mode the more important your workouts get is you're in that kind of pre-competition phase and then within that competition phase you're either lifting like very light just to keep everything neurologically firing or even just pulling out the weights all together moving more towards plyometrics or hill training or just you know short sprints that are also going to be able to get your legs kind of neurologically turned on.
0: Hmm. Yeah, very cool. You know, if, if we think back to your your career, obviously, we know the times we can search those and see the you know, your fastest times that you set, but what was your best race, you know, and that that can be independent of time, but what was your fondest memory of a race where it went, you know, perfect, and you you just felt like you're you're you were hitting it, you know, out of the park?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely Houston half marathon that, that race. It's like both like heaven and hell all wrapped in the same because (laughs) it's heaven, obviously, because how good I felt leading up to that. Like I'll I'll never forget two days before the race doing a run up in big bear Lake in Southern California where I grew up. And like, there was like six inches, eight inches of fresh snow on the ground, like no um, plows had been through yet. So I was literally just like running through a whole bunch of snow, which usually you feel terrible and, you know, you're fighting the snow every single step. And I, I just felt like Tigger, like I just felt like I was bouncing, like I had springs on my legs. It was incredible. Like I knew something special was happening in Houston and like the training had just been clicking, like mind blowing times in training that I'd never seen before that even my coach, I remember he was out of town and I was texting him some like results from my threshold training and he was like, like, are you sure that was right? Like, that's Oh my like Lord, really fast. Cause so I was up in Mamma Lakes training. Yeah. Like running like, like, like 12 miles at like four forty-five pace, you know, it, it nearly 8,000 feet kind of stuff in the middle of like really hard, really dense training. So just wow. it, the training was just clicking. I was feeling like a million bucks. It was just one of those days where I didn't feel like I could go fast enough. Like it just, Felt like the faster I went, the better I felt. So there's still like a lot of like uh, pondering, like what could I have done that day if it was a paced race or if it was a marathon, for example, you know, like it just felt like so good that day. It felt like I was in heaven. But then it's also the reason why I say it's like hell is because then that was my first half marathon and I could never get that sensation back. Like, it seems like there's some athletes like Mo Farah, some guys who are just super consistent and can just run that their same best stuff all the time. And I had a hard time with that. I was more like Alan Webb, where it's like, when we were on, we were on. But it was hard for us to stay there, right? And so right, right. Um, I spent years and years trying to get back to that place and never, never could. So it kind of haunted me that way. Um, but you know, if I could go back and relive that day, that'd be my groundhog day. Um, I would do it without a doubt. Like that was, that was the day when everything was just clicking. What's cool about that is like every runner, every level can relate to that. Like maybe not to those speeds, but it feels the same. You know, when you're having those days where everything is just clicking and you just feel like you're floating, you look down at your watch and you're like, I can't be running that fast. Like <laughs> I couldn't be right. And it is, you know, like it's, it was it was one of those days for me and um yeah uh it's very very special experience
0: well you mentioned training at altitude prior to Houston was that a a, a normal uh you know training protocol that you would practice leading up to peaks and if so, you know, what, what did that protocol look like in terms of your altitude training? What 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 did you find worked for you?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Big Bear Lake at altitude, so I've always been pretty good at altitude and always responded really well to altitude training. So, um, you know, I was at Stanford for all four years. My wife, Sarah, and I, we left Stanford in 2005 after graduating, turned pro, went up to the Mammoth Track Club with Terrence Mahin and Ian Dobson was my teammate at Stanford, went, Alicia uh, Shea, or vargo now um was also up there so we were kind of following them to mammoth and uh and i always loved being in mammoth we did our preseason camps up at stanford and um but what is really interesting to me and what i've learned if i could go back and do something different is i look at that houston experience experience is i was so 5k fit and so focused on 5k development for years and years like Throughout high school, as a miler, two miler, and then at Stanford, I was like an 800, 1500 guy the first couple years, and then focused on the 5K the last two years, and then spent a whole year professionally focused on just the 5K. And then I went straight from that focus to all of a sudden focusing on marathon training. So I was actually going to run the Los Angeles marathon the, that year. That was the plan. And Houston was just supposed to be like a check-in. Let's just see where you're at kind of deal. Uh-huh. And then Houston happened and the doors opened up for me to run London against the best marathoners in the uh-huh. world. Um, Paul Turgot, Halle giver all those guys. And so, of course, I went and did that, you know. Um, but... All that to say, what I learned from that experience is just how important it is for marathoners to stay close to their best ever 5K shape. Like the closer you can be to PR 5K shape, the better your marathon's gonna be. And so if I could go back and do everything differently, in my pro running days i probably would have spent I and mean, the 5k was not my strength that was not my best event i ran 13 16 1 NCAA's my 4th year at stanford there but um i was much more competitive the longer the distance was but i shouldn't i should have spent 6 months out of the year all spring just focused on 5k development and i really think that would have helped me be more consistent in that 59 minute range over half marathon which would have made my marathon a lot better as well so that's kind of like one of those golden nuggets where I had to learn through my own experience that now with run free training and the athletes that we're coaching, we're building off of 5k fitness and we're always going back to that 5k fitness. I just think it's crucially important for marathoners that are looking to optimize their performance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've seen that, you know, in on you know, and if you can get really fast at short course, you know, there's some really top notch you know, top short course Olympic level athletes that when they switch to Ironman, like, bam, it's not that big of a transition for them. They, they can really kill it, you know, in the Ironman, but they have that speed in them, you know? Um, so definitely a lot to be said Absolutely. about that, and that that speed, you know, what about your, what about looking back on your, on your coaches? Well, who would you say is, is, uh, hopefully you had a great coach experience along the way and, and why, who, who may have been one of your, your, your top coaches that you really respect that you worked with?
1: Yeah. Oh, I had so many great coaches. Right. And that's why, like when I'm talking to athletes now and they're like, what's your like theory on coaching or whatever? I'm like, it's like a combination of like everyone I came up under, you know, like literally, I could tell you something super influential that I take away from every single coach that I've had. And I've had the opportunity to work under a lot of the best coaches in the world. So I feel super, super honored to have had the experiences I've had um, working under such great coaches. But, um, you know, I think about like, I came up under my dad when I was in high school. And a lot of the lessons he taught me wasn't so much about like the nuts and bolts of training, but more like how you actually do the training, meaning like what's going on in your head and heart when you're doing the training. And this was a big lesson that I learned again um, as I went into kind of like faith-based coaching before I ran 204 in the marathon that really I was realizing how many of my workouts I was trying to prove myself to myself I was trying to prove that I was fit to myself like every single workout right it was always like Mm -hmm. a race and always a test always this like insecurity that it felt like was brewing inside of me as I was performing these workouts. And if I didn't like run my best workout ever, I was all bent out of shape about it, you know, and I realized that my body actually responds a lot better to training when I'm secure in who I am, when I don't have to prove myself in training. And I just let the training come out of me. And that's something I learned from Irv Ray. I worked with him a little bit when I was in high school. And he'd always say, just let the training come to you. Don't force it. And that is such a huge, huge lesson that was helpful for me. And I think is, is helpful for all athletes, especially really driven athletes to not try to like make this thing happen. Don't try to be Superman in your workouts. Cause I see this all the time with athletes and it happened with me as well, where my workouts would be super high quality and then I'd get to the race and I'd just be a little bit flat and I'd be underperforming in the race. And, I, and for myself, I think that just came 100% from like me needing to prove myself all the time. And that was actually one of the things that led to my breakthroughs at Stanford was I went from like needing to uh, every practice, trying to drill my teammates into the ground and try to prove <laughs> to them I was the fittest guy on the team. I went from that to being like, I'm actually okay just working with my teammates and I don't have to drop them, even if I can. And you see this all the time with some of the best guys who train in the world, Iliad, Kipchoge, all these guys. Like oftentimes, like the guys who are really thriving in the group are the guys who aren't maxing it out every single workout. Like they're, they're the most in control of themselves. Right, and so that that yeah. was a huge lesson I learned from a lot of my coaches. But um, I, another one was uh, Coach Gerard, Andy Gerard. I had him um, my last two years at Stanford, and he was so great at just like making minor tweaks to individualize it for me. So I remember mm-hmm. like sometimes like we, me and Ian Dobson would be doing K's out on the woodchip trail at Stanford, and he would just make little tweaks like, "Hey, I'm gonna have Ian do these last two K's out on the woodchip. You're gonna come back on the track." because you need to work on your foot speed a little bit and we're going to run 400s instead. And so Mm -hmm. he really just like kind of taught me how like just little tiny adjustments make such a big difference. And I think about that all the time with athletes I coach now where I really, I feel like I'm a chef. It's like I prescribe a workout we're doing the workout, but then like the same way that the chef is always tasting and then adjusting the seasoning based on what he's tasting. I'm observing that the athletes and I'm reading them, I'm seeing how much energy they're putting out and then I'm adjusting the workout according to what's going on with them and their system on the day. And I think that really is the like gold standard of coaching is being able to read athletes really well and to customize things according to them.
0: Yeah, I love that. That really gets down to the individualization, you know, of the training and two athletes can have the very same goal that they're chasing, but they might need to train completely opposite. And it reminds me of something I heard you say in the past, which is the plan should follow the athlete, you know, the athlete should not follow a plan. And that's so very profound, you know, when you think about that, you know, and that's, that's what you're saying, like the the adjusting day to day and following the body and what's what's needed or, or the mental preparedness on that day as well, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that was something I actually, uh, Renato Canova told me. He's like, yeah, the training should follow the athlete, not the other way around. And that was so helpful for me because I was the guy who was going to live in die by the training plan it was like if i had uh-huh. to make an adjustment to the training because i had a little right. niggle or i was off it was like my world was com- coming coming crumbling down right and that is not the way to go about training it's like Terrence Mahan used to tell me he's like we want to be like bamboo we bend, but we don't break right but you've got to mm. bend like you've got to adjust things based on how your body's doing Cause, and I know it now as a coach because like when I'm prescribing pacing for my athletes to hit like oftentimes it's like okay this pace is corresponding to the right effort level that I want them to be at but it's really just like I want them, I really want them to be at this effort level, but I know as an athlete, it's like, you want to know what pace to try to run, you know, but really I'm more concerned as a coach that they're at the right effort level. Right. So, um, yeah, now seeing it from the coaching lens, like it's so much more important that we bend our training based on how our body's doing, how it's adapting to the training. And that's when you're going to get those kind of optimal results. Right. So
0: practically speaking, you know, if you are working with an athlete that do you work with athletes that are outside of your local region? And if so, how are you interpreting the data, you know, and there's gotta be the, the, the subjective component coming into it. You know, here's the pace I held today, here's my Garmin file, but you know, that subjective feel from the athlete, how practically, how are you managing that relation with the athlete and then adjusting for the following day or on the fly?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, so basically you want as many data points as you can to get as much data as possible, right? So it's like, like I was talking with my athletes today and we're talking about whoop and using HRV and heart rate and all that stuff and like all of that has its place and all that's important. And I want to know all that data. But to be honest, like what I am falling back on the most is how is an athlete feeling? Like, and so when, when I'm communicating with my athletes who are remote, like I need to know every single day, like how you felt, like it's not just, and not just like, oh, I felt good or I felt okay. Like I need like all the descriptors, right? Like that's mm-hmm. the most important Part, most important piece of information is how they were feeling on that easy day and not just I was tired like what like were you tired because you didn't sleep enough last night were you tired because your muscles are super sore from the lifting we did yesterday do they feel like they just took a pounding on the pavement, like you are feeling energy fatigue, like you're just low, like depleted, like low calorie, like we need to up your nutrition, like I need as many descriptors as possible for my athletes. So, you know, for, for people who are working remotely with coaches, it can be done and it can be successful relationship, but it really hinges heavily upon the athlete being able to describe really well to the coach, how they're feeling and why they're feeling the way they're feeling
0: yeah you know i see way too much of or not enough of that actually you know way too many athletes not really recording you know how they're feeling and responding and the internal sensations and especially in cycling you know where in cycling we have you know now power meters and it's really everybody's so focused on that number that they're trying to hit in their workout and gosh it's so much so much more and so much between the workouts right like the family life, the work, you know, so much of that actually affects tomorrow's training, um, and, and getting inside of like, how, how peaceful are they, you know, in their life in between workouts, you know, has so much effect on the rest of their, their training. Right. So I'm sure you like try and dig that out of them as well.
1: Right. Yeah. And like, and even like Things like you're working like working with women athletes, like when is your period? Like that's actual like a really helpful piece of information for a coach to know, even though that might feel right. weird to talk about, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like all that stuff factors into it and should be addressed by the coach, which is why like a run free training, why we started run free training. I was like, I I want to have something that's really holistic in nature because it's not enough to just have the perfect training prescribed to you, like. And I see this in the weight room with myself. It's like if I'm in a weight loss phase, it doesn't matter how I'm training in the gym. I guarantee you I'm not getting stronger. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what I'm doing. And then the, you flip the script. If I'm eating a ton of calories and I have enough calories on board to support the training I'm doing, I'm getting all kinds of strong, seeing dramatic results. And the the only variable that's shifting is my nutrition, right? And that's just an example of how you can't just look at one thing. Like it, you, you can't just look at just the nutrition, just the sleep. Like it's all got to be there. It's all got to be dialed for optimal results. So I get really frustrated with even like my own mentality that I have at times where I'm like, so concerned about the nuts and the bolts of the training, and then neglecting sleep, like that, that's just stupid. Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's why we have such a big heart at Run Free to provide a holistic experience for athletes, because we know that's how optimal results come.
0: Yeah. You know, again, going back in time a little bit back to around the time, you know, when you retired, Um, this is where your wife, Sarah, you know, she's, she's basically up at her peak now and, and, you know, she's late thirties. So are, so are you correct? Um, how was that transition? Was it just always a natural, like you're going to coach your wife or, you know, that would be a, it'd be, how do you manage that? And was that just an easy transition for you to become her coach?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it wasn't always the intention to, to coach her when I was done. But it just made like too much sense to not do it, you know, having the experience that I've had in running, um, having worked under all the coaches I've worked under. And then just the fact that I'm at every single one of her workouts, I'm on the bike pacing her and i just know her body so well you know we're in such close communication obviously as husband and wife that it's just like it just makes too much sense to not do it kind of thing um it is challenging for sure (laughs) like it's it's the most challenging coaching relationship i have without a doubt you know like you just you speak to your spouse a lot different than you speak with an athlete right um and we have our little problems where if we're fighting about something totally unrelated to running, it's, you can't help it. It's going to spill into the running space when you're out on a bike pacing them. Right. So (laughs) um, there's, there's lots of those little moments where it's, it's tough, but then the majority of the time I just feel so blessed to be able to coach her and get to be a part of her experience. I mean, like, honestly, like the times I've been most emotional in running, weren't my experiences they were her experiences you know like when she mm-hmm. was second at the london marathon like i was losing my mind on the, so- the side <laughs> of the the awesome. uh, where i was cheering from you know and i think i posted that video on social but like i've never been that emotional before right um right. there's just a different kind of experience you have as a husband and coach at the same time when you're working with i mean I've seen her go through seven Olympic trials and her not making the team seven times. And I've seen her just go through incredibly hard emotional moments through running. But when she hits it and she has great performances, it's like, Oh, like having been through all those tough times makes it so much more powerful and so much, so much better um, than it would be if she, if she's crushing it all the time, you get kind of like, Oh yeah, of course she's going to crush it. But because yeah. she's had so many really hard moments in her career and I've been there with her through those, it makes those good moments like London when she was second, just, just unreal. The amount of like, right euphoria and bliss that I'd feel in those moments with her. So um yeah, you know, I feel super blessed to get to coach her and work with her. And I learned a lot from her as well. Like you were saying, she's 39, I'm 39. I had to retire six years ago. She's still at her best. And I think a lot of that goes back to being really good to her body you know like I just pounded my body into the ground I was (laughs) married to the schedule and that just doesn't work long term Um, she's really intuitive with her eating with her nutrition with her sleep she's got recovery just totally dialed in and she's willing to bend the plan like if she's not feeling good if she's got a little niggle she's really quick to jump to cross training to um, inserting extra easy days as needed and it's changed how I coach my athletes now. Now, and the importance I put on being really intuitive with training.
0: Yeah, and she what did a two twenty? Was it a two less than a year ago in December? Right, a two twenty. Yeah, uh, marathon in 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 Arizona at the Marathon Project. Right, I mean, uh, outstanding. I think the f- second fastest female marathon ever. Um, what is she focused on now?
1: Yeah, so she's still, you know, she wants to try to go after that American record, Dina caster 219. Okay. Um, you know, we were teammates with Dina when she ran that time. And um, she's such a phenomenal person and human being and runner, of course. Um, they'd just be an honor to, uh, to go after that record, you know. So she's going after that. You know, we realize, like, she's had an amazing run super late into her career. And I think that's also a testimony to how uh, threshold training can continue to get better um, as you get older. So, you know, things Hmm. like power um, tend to go down. But again, like I was saying, I'm 39 and I'm faster over 100 meters than I've ever been in my life. So, you know, when people Mm -hmm. make these really broad blanket statements like you're gonna lose power as you get older you're like yeah but if you do the weight training i mean you might not be able to be usain bolt right and be 40 years old and setting the world record in 100 meters but Mm -hmm. you can be pretty powerful at 40 years old if you're in the weight room doing the right stuff so same thing with like threshold based training like threshold stuff just i mean she's just gotten like two seconds per mile better like every build up like even one to two seconds and over a long period of time you know she's gone from two i think she debuted at 242 for the marathon and now she's at 220 and it's like sometimes we get the race and sometimes we don't you know like she was right. in better shape before chicago this fall when she ran 227, um, then she was at the marathon project when she ran 220. But she, you know, she has a hard time in, in warm and humid conditions. And that's what she got in Chicago. So we didn't get the race this year. And that's been the case for a lot of her races. Like sometimes she's had a little niggle pop up and she just didn't get the race, but she still made the progress in training and then you're building on that and your next buildup. And then eventually if you show up enough times, like the race will come, those right conditions will come and you will see that time manifested, but you just gotta, you just gotta keep showing up.
0: Did you specifically talk to her before Chicago about alternatives? You know, if that, you know, weather was predicted and, you know, it's not a record setting day. How do you go to plan B? Was that distinctly, Discussed between you two or you know she had to make kind of adjustments on the fly
1: yeah yeah it's such a tricky thing right um i try to have these discussions with my athletes like months in advance because i never like to be like the night before the race talking about dropout scenarios you know (laughs) um but my general philosophy with that is like you only get so many matches to light when it comes to uh, running marathons. You know, if you're trying to make a fire and you have six matches, like don't light those matches unless you're pretty sure you're gonna make a fire, right? Like if it's raining, don't light the match. <laughs> and mm. so that's, and, and I'm talking about like marathoners, like very high level athletes who are trying to run world-class times. Like if you're, you know, trying to break three hours, that's a different deal than trying to run 220 as a female, right? Um, so I don't, I just don't want people to take that out of context but like with sarah yeah like i would rather her drop out of a race if it's not happening so that we can sign up for another marathon six weeks later eight weeks later and take another crack at it because usually we only get two cracks a year now the thing that was tricky about chicago and i was out there on the course yelling data to her is she's sitting in third place you know and if you're gonna get on the podium at a major marathon major you don't drop out of that race, you know? Yeah, like it. that's that's rare territory for Americans to be getting spots on podiums at majors. So, um, you know, it wasn't the right place for her to drop out. Um, if she was not on the podium, 100%, it, when I saw her at mile 17, I would have pulled her. Um, because she was in such phenomenal shape. I wanted to see how fast she could go. And we just, we knew going into it that we weren't getting the day. So we adjusted, you know, like instead of going out in 69, 30, we were going to go out in like 72 flat. So we were making adjustments, you know, but there's always this like, going for time versus going for place and she was equally excited about trying to win the race and trying to get on the podium again in a major marathon so it wasn't the right time to drop but i think for for pro marathoners who don't get the opportunity or shouldn't be running that many marathons at a super high level i think if the race isn't happening you drop out and you you sign up for another race another day you don't you don't like that match unless you know you're gonna make a fire Right.
0: So just as Sarah is chasing the American record, I'm sure there's males out there chasing your records. How 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 long will your record stand? Do you see any folks coming up, uh guys coming up and what kind of the the state of uh men's uh distance running?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm to be honest, I'm shocked that I still have it. Um <laughs> you know, and and I don't want to have it. That's the thing. Like I want to coach guys who break it. Right. Like Mm -hmm. my goal was always like, I wanted to take things to the next level, but then I wanted the next generation to take it to the next level. So I'm never like rooting against guys. I'm always like, guys, let's go. Like, how come we haven't gotten this thing yet? And then especially, you know, as you look at the shoe technology, it's like, if that's giving you an additional Mm -hmm. minute over half marathon, which I think is pretty spot on, like, guys should be breaking that record. It's, it, you know, if I would have run 58 something guys should be running 59 in those, in those shoes. So, um, you know, I don't know how long it's going to last. I hope it doesn't last that much longer. I hope that I can coach athletes to run faster than that. Um, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm like I said, I'm shocked that it's lasted this long.
0: Yeah. Wow. Really cool. Yeah. Good point about the, uh, these new shoes that come out and it still hasn't broken. So, you know, Hey, To wrap things up, how can people follow you, um, learn more about your coaching, any other thing you'd like to kind of tell us about while we have you on the line here?
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I just love like sharing my story. And uh I do that mainly on Instagram, Ryan Hall three and just try to again, like post things helpful information for people who um want to take it to the next level, you know, and a lot of the failures that I've gone through, I feel like weren't weren't supposed to just like die on me it was meant to be shared with other people so they don't make those same mistakes so that's always kind of the goal of my posting and influence and and with run free training if people are interested in coaching they can check us out runfreetraining.com and um, on Instagram as well run free uh training I think is our handle on Instagram so yeah we just love we love working with athletes of every level you know like to, to be honest like it doesn't matter to me if I'm working with a Sarah trying to run 220 or if I'm working with the 4 hour marathoner like i just get so excited about seeing improvement and seeing people do things they didn't know they can do so um you know we invite and welcome everyone on the journey who wants to go on it with us so yeah stoked to uh to, to keep sharing the information and thankful for podcasts like this it's getting information out there to to athletes so they can keep growing and and reach their full potential
0: yeah super cool thanks so much for sharing you know, a lot of your wisdom, but also like you have this like energy, which is just like invigorating and addictive. So it's just like, super cool to get these little bouts, you know, 10 second little uplifts throughout the day of of what you're posting and doing gives us gives us all a lot of, you know, energy. So I really appreciate it. Thanks again, Ryan. And uh, good luck to Sarah.
1: Yeah, thanks, Dirk. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. For more episodes, visit trainingpeaks.com/podcasts. Please head on over to Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you find your podcast to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Until next time, get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge.